free. My poor little children, one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. I must confess that uh, that dream that I had that day has been at once turned into a nightmare. Situation here in Santa Monica, California is very fluid. You can see police here now firing tear gas into the crowd. Some people are laughing, some people are video. I feel that nonviolence is really the only way that we can follow. Because violence is just so self-defeating. The riot ends up creating minimal problems for the Negro community to manage solve. You can, through violence, burn down a building, but you can't establish justice. You can murder a murderer, but you can't murder murder through violence. You can murder a hater, but you can't murder hate. And what we are trying to get rid of is hate, injustice, all of these other things that continue the law. Welcome to the Men's Global Livestream. We're starting a new series today called I Can't Breathe, Hearing, Acting, and Uniting. Hearing versus ignoring, acting versus allowing injustice, uniting versus dividing people. You see, those are the two dynamics, two sets of dynamics that, that could have flowed out of this situation on May 25th when George Floyd was murdered in the streets of Minneapolis. You see, under the pressure of that moment, some real beliefs and some real behaviors uh, revealed a reality of racism in our country that we have to confront in the context of our faith in Jesus because that's who we are. And like Jesus, we have to bring the heart of God into what is happening in our culture versus what? Bring a narrative, bring what our favorite media outlet says, bring what our political affiliation dictates, we must say. But rather, as people of faith, because of a move of God's spirit within us and because of his word informing us, we need to, in this moment, say what our faith in Jesus moves us to say. We need to do what the example of Jesus teaches us to do and do what the Word of God is asking us to do. And to help us out with that, I have asked some of my friends, some of my black pastor friends and colleagues, where I have preached in their churches and we have preached together, to bring us some context, to bring us some insight, and finally, to bring us some prophetic truth, truth for the moment, truth for God's people, so that we, we know what the proper response needs to be. Now, I asked my friends six questions, and you're going to hear their response, and then we're going to go out of their responses right to an application point that flows right out of God's Word so that we know how to respond right now. But before I introduce you to my first friend, I want us to start the conversation by asking a very important question, and the important question is this, what is God doing at this very moment with respect to us, the community of faith, and this issue. And then the second question is, what is God's heart? And I find the answer to the question, what is God doing and thinking and looking for in this moment, in Isaiah chapter five, uh, verse seven. It says this, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Man, if that isn't a prophetic word from the book of Isaiah for this moment, I don't know what is, but for me and for you, it answers the question, what is God doing in this moment? Well, he is tracking his people, right? There's the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, right? That's, that's the community of faith, and then he singles out and the men of Judah, 
right? He singles out the, the male culture of what is going on. What's he looking for from his house and from his sons? He's looking for justice, but what is he seeing? Bloodshed. He's looking for righteousness, but what does he hear? A cry of distress. God is looking for us to have the family resemblance in the midst of our relationships with one another, and he's hoping to see righteousness and justice. In fact, that answers the second question. What is God's heart in this situation? The Bible says in Psalm 33, 5, that the Lord loves righteousness and justice. And we need to unpack those two words before we get into this discussion. So what is God's heart? Man, his heart loves righteousness and it loves justice. What is righteousness, right? Righteousness is being rightly related to God and then rightly relating to our fellow human being. That, in fact, is perfect justice, where we're rightly related to God and because we're related to him, we are rightly related and treating one another in the right way. That is perfect justice. But in an imperfect world, he wants us to deliver what's due. And that's what the word justice means. It means to give what is due. If compassion is due in a moment, that's what you give. If protection is due in a moment, that's what you give. If love is due in a moment, that's what you give. If punishment is due, that is what needs to be given at that moment. And so there is what God is up to. He's tracking us. He wants us. He wants to see righteousness. He wants to see justice. His heart is that he loves those things. And that is where we start now the conversation with my good friend, Ricky Jenkins. I met Ricky speaking at a conference in the green room. And man, we hit it off right from the get go. And I knew that this man was going to be a lifelong friend. In fact, the men of my church know Ricky very well. Uh, we have had him at our men's retreats a couple times. He's actually come and preached uh, at our church. And Ricky is the senior pastor of Southwest Community Church in Palm Desert, California. Uh, he is a man of God. He is an amazing preacher. And he is one of my best friends. And so I want us to listen now to some questions that I asked Ricky. And the first question that I asked Ricky was, when you saw the video of George Floyd pleading for his life, pleading for breath, and later found out that he lost his life, what were the first few thoughts that went through your mind? Listen to Ricky's answer. What were my thoughts uh, when I watched um, the killing of George Floyd? Um, this was Tuesday, the day after Memorial Day. I was here uh, doing some work and on Tuesdays, I record devos for our church that you know air every day. So it's usually a very energetic and exciting time. You kind of flesh out the word, and we did that for an hour or two. I went downstairs to my office, and you know, you're just checking social media, and I pull up the video and watched. And um, I felt what I'm sure everybody watching this right now uh, felt. Um, I, uh, I watched the video, and as every minute, you know, progressed, I, I, just, I just sat and cried. I just, I just wept. Um, te just tears flying from my face. Um, you just see what's happening. First of all, this guy's handcuffed, so he's not a danger. I don't know what's happened before. We now know basically nothing's happened before. So nothing, nothing. No, it doesn't matter what happened before, nothing deserved what I'm seeing, right? And uh, three police officers on top of his back, and then the one officer's knee is on George Floyd's neck. It seems like they're in complete control. People are begging them to get off, and this brother is gasping for air, saying, I can't breathe. And so I just cried, because I'm just thinking, here we go again, and I know exactly what I'm going to see. Um, and I'm watching this grown man who we now know is a great man, a good man, a Christian man. Man, just being in such desperation that he cries out for his mama. The hopelessness and the fear that that guy must have had, and I'm just watching it and I'm weeping. I'm weeping, and there, there was a pain I felt last Tuesday that felt like the pain of hopelessness. I've been fighting this stuff 
all my life. I'm 43 now, but never have I felt hopeless. Tuesday, when I first saw George Floyd's video, I felt hopeless because I'm like, if this can happen at a time like this, 2020, it, it sure enough can happen to me. It can happen to my sons. Um, crying out for his mama. So I, I was distraught, man. Um, I still am. And this was compounded with the fact that we just watched Ahmaud Arbery. We just saw Breonna Taylor, um, Laquan McDonald, and everything else that's going on in the past. And not to mention that, not to mention Emmett Till, you know, 75 years ago. And everything else has happened in this country against uh, persons of color. So I think all of it came crashing down in that one uh, nine minutes that I watched that, that video. And my heart is broken and I feel hopeless. I know I'm not hopeless, but I feel hopeless. I feel scared. Um, I want Jesus to come back so this can go away, but I know he's left us here to keep fighting for peace and justice. So that's, that's what I thought. So what is the right response in the situation? If you're taking notes with us, please write this down. We must feel the moment fully. We must feel the moment fully. When you see such injustice and struggle and that situation which happened on the street, when you see the ensuing grief and pain uh, that it causes my black brothers and sisters, we have to feel that fully. And that not is just the right response as a human being, but that's Jesus when he was confronted with people who were distressed and dispirited. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter nine as Jesus is watching over the city of Jerusalem. It says this in Matthew 9, 36, it says, seeing the people, he felt compassion on them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Do you see the progression? He takes in the situation with his eyes. It goes to his head, he processes it, and then it travels right into his heart. The word compassion is the Greek word splagnizomai. It means from the gut, right? And so you see the process, he's seeing the distress, he's seeing people who are dispirited, and he lets it go in from his eyes, and then it goes to his brain, and then it sinks right down into his heart. So Jesus sees and he feels distress, and when people are dispirited, seeing and feeling versus what? Seeing and compartmentalizing or seeing and politicizing, or seeing and rationalizing, or seeing and excusing, or seeing and desiring everything to go back to normal. No, Jesus sees, Jesus feels, it travels to his heart, and he gets hit in the gut. You know, the Bible says in Romans 12, 15, mourn with those who mourn. You know, I'm, I saw that and I thought, oh my gosh, he has family. I later learned out that he has a whole generation of young men that he, he, he mentored in Houston's third ward before he moved to Minnesota. I'm thinking of his family and I'm mourning with them, but then you know what made me extra sad? It's sad to me to see my friend <laughs> Ricky Jenkins feel so hopeless and dispirited when he witnessed again the unjust death of a black man. And so we must feel the moment fully. Now, the second question that I asked Ricky was, what indignities or injustices have you personally experienced as a black man that non-black America has no clue at all that you deal with? Listen to his answer. Uh, so what, what have I experienced in my own life? And I guess that's the question that you'd ask as an African-American guy, and especially particularly as one from the South, what have I experienced in my own life? Um, you know, I, I don't claim that my experiences are all that, you know, out of the box or abnormal, uh, nor are they terrific experiences. Others have been through much worse, but I guess, um, yeah, I, I've been called the N-word by whites, um, at least a dozen dozen and a half, two dozen times with uh, various experiences. I never think about that stuff till I get asked questions like this. So um, 
so that's happened. Um, I remember, uh, you know, black and white in the South pretty much. And I remember me and my mom were going to this uh, award show at a bank because I had written an essay that won a scholarship as like a fourth grader. And we were with these kids and we were getting these certificates and we're kind of downtown Brandon, Mississippi. And I remember me and mom holding hands, walking towards the elevator. And there's this white mom with her daughter who apparently was a recipient as well. And they rushed to get on the elevator. And like, we're walking towards the elevator, kind of saying, motioning them, hey, we're going to the same place you are. And I'll never forget the, the mom pushing the doors closed so that we wouldn't be together. And I remember as like a nine-year-old thinking, that, that's racism, right? Um, and probably, you know, 50, 60 experiences like that just coming up, that's just normal. But your question was about uh, in, injustices, the things I've experienced. So like, you know, this is not new to anybody who's a person of color, particularly a black guy, but you get raised different, right? So like, um, mom told us, when we, especially when we started driving in high school, mom would say, uh, and dad, they would go through this whole regimen, look, don't you speed, don't you drive crazy, don't you act crazy, just like anybody else's parents. But then black parents go on and they say, listen, if you get pulled over, respect the policeman, don't raise your voice, don't talk back, don't argue with them. It doesn't matter if you're right and they're wrong, you act like they're right, no matter what they do. Don't have an attitude, roll all your windows down when they pull you over so they can see clearly into the car, okay? When you, they pull you over, they used to tell me this, like keep both your hands on the steering wheel and look ahead. If they tell you to get your license, you say, officer, can I grab my license so, slowly? Get their permission. If they tell you to reach for your registration, officer, is it okay, I'm just gonna reach here slowly. Like they went through this whole regimen, man, like A to Z. Like you had to do this stuff. Uh, never run from the police officers, don't you ever run. If you're at a party and some fool's acting crazy and the police come in, don't you dare run. You stay there where they can see you, hold your hands up and get down. They just told us this stuff because they knew that eventually something was gonna happen. Now, again, I'm a church dude. Most of the time I was driving, I was driving to church, even as a kid, so I don't, you know, my life was boring, it's normal. Um, but my dad got me a brand new 95 Camaro senior year in high school. Um, and so like it was fiery red, great car, and probably got pulled over probably seven times just that year um, with that car, at least. Uh, gotten pulled over several times, not for speeding. I got a couple speeding tickets, but um, when I got pulled over that year, I got pulled over for no reason other than for a police officer to check my license and check my registration to see if my car was mine or stolen. I can't tell you how many times that happened over the next few years. It's just normal, you know? Um, I remember a detective pulling me over saying, I fit a description. I heard, I've heard that so many times, and you know, I'm just driving my car. Uh, one day, my brother took my car to school, so he's driving in the morning. He couldn't have been 16. He gets pulled over in the main street there in our hometown. And again, not speeding, not pulled over for anything. A couple of police officers, one of whom was a female, pulls him out and questioning him. and. My brother's like, hey, here's my license, here's my registration. And the police officer kept saying, uh, black man, nice car. Black man, nice car. Black man, nice car. They forced him to get out of the car and they, they kind of frisked him and had him spread out over the car for like 20 minutes. He's crying, he's scared to death. Black man, nice car, black man, nice car. My dad, thank God, is on his way to work now. Sees it, pulls over and begs the police officer who was literally pulling her gun on my brother for nothing. Uh, he wasn't moving or nothing. So, you know, experiences like that, right, here and there. Um, but I, I want to, there's a conditioning that comes with being black in America. Um, du Bois called it double consciousness. But you need to know this about your black brothers and sisters and probably other demographics within our society. So mom would always say, when you go into a bank, when you go into a business office, um, make sure that you never have on a hat because you never want to look suspicious. And she would say, uh, watch jackets and stuff like that, things that you gotta pull, pull stuff out of. She would say, don't ever have your hands in your pockets. Because when you're in a bank and they got security guards, you don't wanna look like you're, pull, you're reaching to get something. Never do that. All, you know, and so you grow up with this. Um, double con you, you just assume everybody's looking at you expecting you to do something. Um, 
so I love looking at houses. I walk every morning and I love walking because one, I walk, but two, I just like the houses. I, I just love looking at different houses. And we've got a gated community because that's all that's out here. And across the street from our neighborhood is another neighborhood that just got finished. And three, four weeks ago, I'm walking out and I've always wanted to see those houses, but the gates were, are never open. And this particular morning, the gates are open. I'm like, oh yeah, I get to go walk in. So I'm just walking over, I'm 43 years old. And I'm walking over to just go check out some houses and walk around this big old neighborhood. And then it hit me, fool, what are you doing? Somebody's gonna call the police on you. <laughs> so I got in there and left. I remember uh, as kids, we were in my mom's car, a 1990 Chrysler Fifth Avenue, New Yorker. We'd been skating with the fam. Uh, Dad's trunk was broken. And I remember we had this little t t tie rope, right? And it was, um, and the, the, the trunk was a jar. And I remember we were lost leaving the uh, skating rink and we went into this one neighborhood because we took the wrong turn and we had to go into this neighborhood and turn around. Uh, so we were lost. And I remember this one car had a white guy in it and he stopped and he's looking at us like this. And we, we're 15 and 16, so we're like, you know, hey, and we keep on going. Well, apparently that guy called the police uh, and I ain't even hating, right? You're in your neighborhood, you don't know, yeah, whatever. Well, we're driving home, finally figure out where we're going and we notice there's one police car after us, no lights, just following us. And we're like, okay, that's pretty scary. Um, and then there was two cars, two sheriff's cars after us. Uh, and then there's three. Um, three sheriff's cars following us for like 10, 15 minutes all the way home. No lights, not pulling us over. And we're just like, Lord Jesus, what is going on? Scared to death. And we pull up in our driveway and all three cars go by. And we, you know, it's time to go to bed. We get in our jammies, we jump into the bed, turn off the lights and everything. Doorbell rings 10 minutes later. Dad comes to our room and says, son, the police officers are here and they want to speak to you. So we're like, okay. And we go out and now there's four sheriff's um, patrol cars. And they say, sir, um, um, you know, there was a call made about this car that fits this description. We'd like to look in the trunk. And we're like, yes, sir. And so we open up the trunk. Of course, there's nothing in there, and they go home. Now, say what you want, but that's what you go through, right? I'm 43, and to this day, um, even though there's police officers in our church that I love, and our church does great things for the law enforcement community as well, we should, but I'm 43, and to this day, when I see police officers, even though I train my sons to go to them and say, thank you for the job you're doing, because that's my job, um, there's fear. Uh, if ever I get pulled over, um, if I get pulled over, I'm texting my wife saying, pray. It's just how it is. Wow. That's someone's reality. You know, my wife and I were, were on social media and we saw a post and it was about a black man who lives in a suburban neighborhood and he was sharing that he doesn't go for a walk by himself. He has to take his little white dog and he has to bring his eight-year-old daughter. Because in that frame, he's a loving father and he's a family guy. But if he were to be walking by himself, he would just be a black man. You know, what if you were walking around with suspicion where you were suspected all the time? And, and so when you hear Ricky share his testimony, it leads us to kind of our second application, and I'm gonna show you biblically why it's our second application. Write this down. How do we respond? We must embrace the reality of racism fully. Fully versus what? Fully versus partially. Or just that it's there. No, it's a living, breathing reality that is in the fabric uh, of our culture. Now, why embrace the reality of racism fully? Because Jesus did. Jesus, in the first century, walked into a culture full of racism, full of favoritism, full, full of elitism, full of bias, and the same narratives and responses were happening. Uh, there were the deniers, you know, there were the deflectors, there was the religious uh, community, and they all had a narrative they wanted to use to justify their response to the reality of what was going on in their culture. And one of the best pictures of Jesus taking racism on, just head on, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so people are asking him, hey, how do we inherit eternal life? And, 
And Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as myself. And one of the, the men asking uh, a question uh, says this. He says in, in Luke 10, verse 29, I'll go back, uh, the man wanted to justify his actions, the Bible says. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a story, here he goes. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him for dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Now, you have to understand how incendiary and how confrontational the parable of the Good Samaritan is. A Samaritan was a mixed-blood Jewish person, Assyrian and Jewish, and they were frowned on and they were looked down on. And so when Jesus looks at this, there was, a, there, was a, there was a cultural embedded caricature of who a Samaritan was, what their character was like. It had nothing to do with who they really were, what they were really like. And the man asks, well, can I love God and, and can I love people? Uh, define the neighbor. Well, Jesus, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, answers his question that the neighbor is not the avoider. The neighbor is not the ignorer. The neighbor is not the denier. No, the neighbor, the good Samaritan, is the one who responds to the reality. And that is a prophetic word. When Ricky is sharing about his reality, do we avoid it? Do we ignore it? Do we deny it? Or do we respond fully to it. And that's why we must embrace the reality of racism fully. Why? Because Jesus did. You know, Ricky and black America feel a lot like Job when he says in Job 19.7, I cry out, help, but no one answers me. I protest, but there is no justice. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're black or white or Asian or Hispanic or, or whatever ethnic background you are. Have you ever felt like that? where you're experiencing something and you're seeing something, maybe it's over time or maybe it's in the moment, and people are just walking right by it. Like they don't see what you see, they don't feel what you feel, they're not experiencing what you're experiencing. You ever felt like that? It's isolating and it's lonely. And can we just all agree right now that God hates every form of loneliness? In fact, that's why he sent Jesus, because he never wanted us to be separated from him. That's why Jesus broke the rules to make the lonely feel dignity. He touched the ethnically unacceptable. He touched the morally unacceptable. He touched the physically unacceptable. Why? Because they were lonely. They were the least. They were the lost. They were the left out. And when you hear Ricky talk, we have to respond the right way. And the, and the next best response is we gotta embrace the reality of racism fully, because that's when we can connect. That's when uh, we're all on the same page, that it's there and we're called to contend with it. Now, the next question I asked Ricky uh, is a very important one that all of us, uh, especially non-black American, needs to pay attention to his answer. I asked him, when people say all lives matter or everyone is created in God's image, as a response to the situation, how do you, Ricky, receive that? Listen to his answer. So, so what, do I, what I think when I hear all lives matter or all of us are created in God's image, I'm just gonna be real. Um, what I hear is people leveraging their privilege to not deal with the issue that's at hand. I don't know that's their intentions, but that's what I feel when people say all lives matter. I think it's a gross denial of the suffering and the discrimination, um, the hardships that at least African-Americans in this country have had to face. 
Um, and in my own experience, right, I can only speak for myself, in my own experience, when I hear all lives matter, um, and it's a vehemence, right? Like, all lives matter, right? It's always like this. And of course, everyone agrees with that statement and that sentiment, but no one can agree with the fact that that's actually been the reality in our culture. And so when I hear all lives matter, I hear it with such a vehemence and such, a, such an emphasism, right? Like, like people are emphatic, all lives matter. I never hear from the people that say that to me, I never hear that same level of intensity when there's an injustice against a person of color. So I never, from the people that I do life with that say all lives matter, I never hear them get that amped up when things like George Floyd happens. And so even as the George Floyd thing has gone down, like the first time I heard from people was not when George Floyd was murdered, it was when looting and rioting started to say, isn't this senseless, Ricky, don't you agree? And of course I agree, but the, the, really, the conversation you want to start is about looting and rioting and not about the issue that really is the cause of all this stuff, which is continued police brutality in our nation. Like, that's what I hear when I hear All Lives Matter. You know what I'm saying? It's just like a refusal to deal with the weight of the history of what's gone on in, in our country. So you've heard this old anecdote, right? Like, take away All Lives Matter and say All Houses Matter. So you go in a neighborhood and you look at all these homes, all houses matter. Well, the problem is one of them's on fire. <laughs> one of them's on fire. The house that is black America in this country is on fire. And I think I speak for my Hispanic and Latino brothers and Filipino and Asian American brothers and sisters where I just say, you know what, they're, they're pr pretty close to that as well. We gotta recognize that. Poor whites, right? That house is on fire. And so it's just disingenuous for me when I hear all lives matter because it's just a gross denial of the fact that for too long in our great nation that we love, all lives have not mattered and we know it. I like one of my favorite, um, uh, I think she's a critical theorist. She teaches on race and reconciliation. She's a white professor, I forget her name now, but one of the things she does when she teaches is she says to white students, if there are any of you that would be happy to be treated as you see African-Americans are treated in this country, please stand. Like if you would be happy to be treated just the way African-Americans are treated, stand. And no one stands. And then she says, well, that means that one, you understand that they're not being treated like everyone else is being treated. And two, you've been tolerant and not been willing to step up and speak up about that. So for me, you, you ask me what I think about <laughs> all lives matter. That's what I, I think. Um, what I think. All houses matter, but one house is on fire. Did you hear those powerful words and that powerful picture of what it means to respond to this? And that leads me to my, my next, my next fill-in, which is we must stop responding dysfunctionally. See, it would be dysfunctional to say, well, all, ha all houses matter. Yeah, they do, but one house is is, is on fire. And we respond dysfunctionally and insecurely when we want to keep a way of thinking and living that we're comfortable with or that is uh, convenient. And you know, when you think about uh, God and when He comes into our lives, man, he, he changes the whole landscape. And it talks about this in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, just when, when God shows up and, and then there's two kinds of responders to light coming into the situation. There's the fleers and then there's the facers. And I want you to listen in closely uh, to what the Bible says. It says this, this is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God light and won't come near it, fearing a painful exposure. But anyone working and living in truth and reality welcomes God light so the work can be seen for the God work it is. You see, you have a, a dysfunctional response to 
light exposing something, and you have a functional and normal and proper response to light exposing a reality. In group A, uh, those are the fleers. When light comes on a subject, right, there's, there's denial uh, and illusion. And it's because they want to keep doing what they were doing. But then there's this other group where, yeah, it's uncomfortable anytime light comes on to uh, a situation, but you see, light is synonymous with truth. Truth is synonymous with God. And we don't have to fear when God exposes things. And that's why uh, the verse closes out, but anyone working and living in truth and reality, there's the light, welcomes God light so the work can be seen for the God work it is. You see, this situation is a test. It's a test of whether or not we are living in truth and reality. And we can respond dysfunctionally, living in wishing and hoping and convenience and fantasy, or we can respond properly, where we are living in truth and reality, acknowledging that the light exposed on this actually is truth and reality, and God is in truth and reality. That's where God is. That's where he operates, not in, in, in fantasy or delusion or denial. And so God is doing a work right now, and when something is plain and clear and you don't acknowledge it, the Bible says it's really confusing. And that's how our relationship with God works. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, it talks about how we have to acknowledge uh, what's true and what's real in order to have a connection with God, and then we, want, we need to make an application. It says this, it says, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then... We have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Listen, if we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our lives. So there are things that are true. There are things that God says is true about us, and God does not allow us to live in denial and illusion about what's true about us. And the Bible says when we claim we haven't sinned in our relationship with God or, or, or that we don't have any, uh, we're calling God a liar and we're showing that his word has no place in our hearts. In other words, it's dysfunctional. It's a dysfunctional relationship to reality that affects the connection. We're not on the same page with God when we say, hey, we have no sin, uh, and yet we have a relationship with God because God says we have sin, right? The situation is true in this. We have to live in the light. We have to acknowledge truth and reality. And guess what? If we're not in truth and reality uh, and, and acting dysfunctionally, it inhibits our connection black and white in every race because there's a disparity in what one person sees and says is true and recognizes is true and what's exposed versus how we're responding to it, and it affects the relationship. Now, the next question I asked Ricky, and this is a really important one. If you could see white America do one thing that would be meaningful in this moment, what would it be? Listen to his answer. So if I could see uh, white America uh, do one thing in this conversation, what would it be? That is an unbelievable question. Um, so many things that all of us need to do. Um, but from my experience as an African-American believer in this country, I think the one thing I would want America to do was um, is, is speak. I think that's it. I, I want white America to speak, to speak to the issue, to accept it as truth, to and, and speak about it. The Bible says, um, Luke 6, I believe, um, a good person out of the goodness of their heart will bring forth that which is good, but a bad person with what's evil in their heart will bring forth that which is bad. And then it says, out of the abundance of what's in the heart, the mouth will speak, which means that if it's in your heart, you'll speak on it. And that's why um, I think a lot of the failures of, the, of, of, of white America, the white evangelical church, whatever you want to call all that stuff, has been hurtful in the past is because if I don't hear you speaking about it, that's an indicator that it's not in your heart. 
So speaking about it is evidence that it's actually in your heart, right? Um, you don't just feel bad about the issue, but it, you, it's moved you. You're speaking about it. So like um, for me, this week, George Floyd has happened and all my white brothers and sisters, my white colleagues, preacher buddies, I'm probably doing 19 webinars this week to talk about this issue. And that's right. And we need to do that. I've got church members in this beautiful, awesome church, Southwest, texting me, how are you doing? How are you holding up? I'm so sorry. Praise you, Jesus, that this movement is happening in our hearts. There's a lot of foolish looting and writing stupid stuff that's detracting from the actual issue, but underneath, God's doing great things. But I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, not just to feel bad about it, and, but, but move. And I think the way you move in this moment is speak. And here's the reality, and I'm not trying to be defeatist here, but it's just truth. Uh, as a black man in America, my voice out of a one to 10 is a four on its best day, just because of the realities in history. Um, my white brothers and sisters' voice um, just means more, it's more influential uh, than mine. And so use your voice and speak. Preachers preach the truth and apply what the truth says to all people of all racial and ethnic backgrounds, right? Like be inclusive, speak. Um, let your brother, let your sister, let your neighbor know that you have consternation about injustice and racism and speak. Man, that, that can turn this thing around. So I would encourage my white brothers and sisters to speak, use your voice. Wow, Ricky just spoke the heart of God. Not only must we feel this moment fully, embrace the reality of racism fully, stop responding dysfunctionally, but next, the proper response in this moment right now culturally is we must stop feeling bad and start speaking up. That's what we're doing right now. I thought, Lord, what can I do? Man, I gotta speak up, right? And Ricky just articulated how, how words, our words really reflect the heart. And when you feel bad, that's one thing, but when you actually publicly, with conviction and in the open, speak your heart on an injustice, the, the person or group of people who feel that injustice most meaningfully look at you and they go, man, now that person gets me. Now, this is all throughout the Bible where when you have injustice, God's people are called to step up and speak up. In Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9, it says this, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Now, in this context, there is a physical poverty, and a physical poverty creates a social poverty, and that social poverty is exploited by evil. And that can be applied to various dimensions. In, in this context, right, are we talking about an actual physical poverty, a lack? Or talking about a lack of justice? A poverty in the dimension of justice. And that gets exploited. And what are we called on to do when someone is being exploited? Right? We're called to speak up. Jesus and the reference that Ricky articulated in his response uh, to that question, uh, says in Matthew 12, verses 34 and 35, he says this, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. So when pressure comes on any man or any person, it squeezes out what's truly inside. Silence speaks just as much as speaking up speaks. And it tells a story uh, about your insides. So we must stop feeling bad. And we gotta start speaking up. Now the fifth question that I asked Ricky, very important question for all of us pastors and really for all of God's people who, who love him. I asked Ricky, as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, as a gospel-driven person, what prophetic and practical actions constitute the best possible response to injustice? And listen to what he had to say about that. What would be my advice to, to pastors, to believers, lay leaders, about your prophetic duty and your practical um, responsibility in a moment like this? That's a good question. Um, I think if you're a pastor, um, 
it's weird, right? Because you have two responsibilities. On the one side, you're supposed to be a pastor, right? You're a shepherd. You love and care and nourish for people. Um, but on the other side, uh, you have a prophetic responsibility, right? To be uh, or to echo God's voice and remind them of their covenant commitment to God and God's covenant commitment to them, no matter what they're going through, right? So like there's this pastoral responsibility and this prophetic responsibility to lift up the truth. So I think with this conversation, I would encourage pastors in this moment um, to, from the scripture, speak on this. This is not a, racism is not a new issue. Um, brutality is not a new issue. It's been going on since the garden. And I think enlightening your people on the pews with respect to what has always happened in human, human history, you see it in the Bible, you see it in history, is still happening now. But to say what thus saith the Lord in the midst of that. Um, a lot of white pastors have called me this week, Ricky, I am clueless. I don't know what to do. And my encouragement to them is that your people would probably rather see you try and fail than not try anything at all. So that's my encouragement, especially to white pastors. Uh, I think the true scripture reading, Jesus loving person would rather see you as a pastor get up and make an attempt to make some sense of out of all the madness we're experiencing in this life from the scriptures. I think they'd rather see you try and fail than not try at all. No one's looking for an expert. They're just looking for someone to say, I see it. I feel it, but this is what God has to say in spite of it. I think everybody needs that. Um, and then secondly, I would say um, practical, is it's time to become um, very, very conversant in this conversation on race, racism, racial reconciliation, police brutality. Uh, it's amazing to me that we in the church will read copiously about uh, church history and doctrine and systematic theology, but won't do it about race in America, which is literally one of the idols that our nation faces. And so I would say three things, get intentional. If you're a pastor, if you're a leader, get intentional. Just commit to yourself, God, this, is, this, is, this conversation on race, police brutality, all this kind of stuff, I need to get conversant about that. And I, I, I'm gonna get intentional, Lord. I'm gonna commit to including this conversation in my ministry repertoire, right? So I'm not gonna just, uh, break my heart for um, sex trafficking and for abortion, all those are worthy and important, or for immigration, I'm gonna include this topic of race and, and I'm gonna get, I'm, I'm gonna be intentional. Lord, it'll be a part of my ministry and how I show up for the sheep for the rest of my life. So get intentional, get informed, right? Nobody gets to be a dummy when it comes to race in America. You need to read the books, you need to read the articles, you need to know the arguments, no substitute for scripture, but it's just an easy click away. We've got resources here at our church where you can get informed about civil rights history, slavery, reconstruction, Jim Crow. You need to know about what was happening with sharecropping. You need to know about what was happening with the great migration of blacks from the South to the North and to the West. You need to know the history of discrimination with housing because it literally created the systems that we suffer with today. You need to know why I always say that the average white American in this country is starting on third base while the person of color is starting from home plate. And that's why there's a system at work that perpetuates itself, right? Like you need to understand that when you say to a person of color, when police brutality happens and we lament that and you need to say, well, everyone's saying something about this. No one's saying anything about black on black, on black crime in Chicago. You need to know how much of an idiot you sound like when you say that. Okay, like it's lit, like if you knew, I've lived in Chicago, and if you saw all the work that black churches were doing in the South Side to stop black on black crime, it's just that it's not a popular news story, so you don't hear about it, okay? And you need to know that most crime is black on black in the black community. Most crime in the white community is white on white. Filipino, Filipino on Filipino. It's just that there's a system at work whereby black on black is the story that people try to tell because it's this whole system that's at work here, right? So anyways, get informed. <laughs> and then lastly, get involved. Um, if you are a black pastor in America and you don't have a white friend and a Hispanic and Latino friend, or Asian American friend, whatever you wanna call it, okay? If you don't have a diverse dinner table, I think you're failing your congregation in this moment. Write me, email me, whatever. I ain't gonna read it, but do what you gotta do. 
if as a black pastor in America or a white pastor in America or a Hispanic pastor, if I have not diversified my dinner table and exposed myself to multi-ethnic relationships, gotten involved where the newspaper stories of what's going on with one race moves from facts to facts plus a feeling because I've got a friend of a different ethnic persuasion than me. So it's not just a fact I'm reading about a particular racial group. I'm now feeling that story through the lens of my friend right? Like you're, you're going to miss it. So get involved. Your dinner table needs to be diverse because if your dinner table is not diverse, your preaching will never be. So you, so you got to do that. I remember um, I, I was in Memphis, Tennessee for several years and a good buddy of mine, his name is Jeff Randall. Jeff Randall's a white guy from Indiana. I'm a black guy from Mississippi. We were in the same church. So we said, hey, dude, let's meet every Thursday, hold each other accountable. Uh, so for a year, me and Jeff were just hanging out, man, talking about marriage and parenting and, you know, praying together. And it's great. And we took turns. I'd pay one week. He'd pay the next. And we go to our, our dig there in uh, downtown Memphis. It was Elvis's favorite restaurant. It's called, uh, a place called The Arcade. And we go in. And that particular morning, there's a bunch of sheriffs and deputies on one table. We said, hey, to the sheriffs or whatnot. I knew some of them. And uh, we, we sit down. Well, it's my turn to pay. We finish. I go up to the clerk. Clerk's like a 16-year-old white girl. Jeff's there. I am. And I reach for my wallet. Wallet's gone. And I look at Jeff. I says, dude, I forgot my wallet, man. Can you cover me till next week? He says, yeah, no, no problem. He reaches for his wallet. Gone. I freaked out. Like I'm, I'm sweating. Like I, I can still taste the fear. I was scared to death because in my mind, those sheriffs were about to arrest me and take me to jail. Um, that, that's what I'm playing out of my mind. So I'm spastic and I'm looking at the clerk. I'm saying, I'm so sorry. I'll stay here. I'll stay here the whole time. He lives right around the corner. He can go get money and he can come back. And I'm just, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I'm noticing now that she's looking at me like I'm crazy. Jeff's looking at me like I'm crazy. Jeff literally interrupted me and says, dude, are you crazy? Whatever. And he looks at her and says, hey, I live around the corner. I'll be back in a half hour. And she says, okay. And we walk out. And he's changing the subject. And I'm like, whoa, time out. Bro, we got to unpack that because I thought I was about to go to jail. He said, really? I said, yeah. And we went back into the restaurant and we started to talk about his story coming up and my story coming up and why there was such a difference. But here's how we had a safe place to do it. We had exposed ourselves to a diversified dinner table. And it, I wasn't just talking to a guy who had to represent all white people. I was talking to my white friend so he could get understanding from me and I can get understanding from him. So get intentional, um, get informed, and get involved with people that don't look like you, act like you, think like you, or vote like you, but you're one in the red shed blood of Jesus Christ. You know what I loved about Ricky's response to that question in terms of as just a follower of Jesus in a gospel driven person. What, what are some practical actions? He said, diversify your dinner table. Did you hear that? It just is such a, uh, a picture that I, I resonate with because um, my mom, as a mother of seven kids, five boys and two girls, um, she was known growing up as the mother of many. Uh, people were always coming in and out of our house, all different stripes and colors of people, and that, that really resonated with me. You've got to diversify uh, your dinner table. And I love that story about him and his friend Jeff, where Jeff uh, wasn't in touch with kind of the, the experiences culturally that Ricky grew up with. And then there was this moment that, that brought it to the surface. And what did they do? Uh, they took more time. And that leads us to our next practical uh, response, right, to, to this uh, issue and moment in time. Um, we must get involved by faith. Uh, what does that mean? It means it's going to take some risks. We're going to have to break some rules, uh, some cultural rules. Now, uh, our model for this is Jesus. Jesus walked into a culture, uh, a broken male culture to be specific, that said, thank God I'm not a, a woman. Thank God I'm not a kid. Thank God I'm not one of those Gentiles. Right? And what do you see Jesus do? Jesus steps in and he connects with and protects and defends women. He says, let the children come, and he touches them and bless them. And he's telling parables about the good Samaritan. And so uh, the model is Jesus 
Were taking those steps a risk for Jesus in his culture? 100%, but he was the man of God. And he was connecting with people that broken religious and male culture weren't connected with. And man, that's why everybody started to fall in love with Jesus, the man from heaven. But I love this vignette in John chapter 4 where he kind of breaks the rules and we just see him in action. And uh, him and his buddies are walking along. Uh, they, they, they get hungry. Jesus sends the disciples to go pick up some lunch. And we pick up the film right in this moment. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, uh, Could someone have brought him some food? And Jesus interrupts and he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. You see, Jesus was moving into uh, a more diverse set of relationships. He was breaking the cultural rules that were in practice uh, in his tribe, uh, and he was, he, was, he was crossing the bridges. And I love the, the line, and they were surprised to find him, talking with a woman. I bet you they were surprised him touching a leper, surprised him defending uh, the adulteress, uh, surprised to uh, hear him articulate stories about good uh, Samaritans as well. And what I love about this vignette is that, that Jesus says, you know what, my food, it's not about physically eating. That's not the priority here, right? The priority here is me doing uh, the Father's work and doing His will because He sent me to do it and to finish His work. In that context, what was it? It was connecting with people that, that they wouldn't connect with. And what an amazing example of Jesus kind of breaking the rules culturally to advance the kingdom and to advance uh, His connection to people who feel left out and advancing the attractiveness of the gospel uh, about Himself. But Jesus took risks. And the Bible speaks to that, that aspect of our journey with God. Uh, it says this in Hebrews 10, 38. It says, but my righteous one will live by faith. And in this moment, that's what we need. Uh, the Bible goes on to say uh, in God's words, he says, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. You see the picture where we're being called by our faith to take some certain actions like the son of God and break some rules culturally and diversify our dinner table. And you know what? When we do that, we're gonna feel things we've never felt, we're gonna see things we've never seen before, and we're gonna do things we've never done before because that's what's operating in faith. We're committing without knowing what's on the other side of it because God has modeled that for us and God has messaged that and our faith is calling out that kind of conviction. So my hope for all of us, um, several hopes, you know, smaller hopes first. I do hope for um, wisdom in legislation. I do, I do hope um, that we see that this is a national issue and um, there, there's some legislation that's uh, innovative and right um, that I've seen other countries use that I think could benefit us um, that involves proper lanes for our law enforcement community but also incentivization. Um, you endorse what you celebrate and I'd love to see this country um, um, stumble upon legislation whereby, uh, yeah, uh, our, our brothers and sisters um, in the law enforcement community have proper lanes to, to, to do their work with, but also they're celebrated, right, for doing it right. We just don't hear enough of those stories. They're not incentivized enough for where de-escalation actually happens. Um, obviously, outlawing police, police brutality in all its forms, but also incentivizing, right, and rewarding. Um, the, the tragedy is that a few police officers gave a lot of good police officers a, a bad name and their, their work got harder this week. We got police officers in our church. I've been checking on them daily, right? Like, are you okay? You know, encouraging them. We need to incentivize that. I would love to see a community wrap our arms more around the law enforcement community. That's the only way we're gonna move forward.
um, I hope for, you know, our country to just finally fully accept what black Americans have always known to be true, that there's a problem and it's severe. And I, my, my hope is that we all accept it. But my biggest hope is that the church stand up and that the church lead. Uh, we're not gonna see massive cultural change without the church leading the way. And so the church is the place where people of all backgrounds and all um, persuasions, uh, people that don't act like, think like, uh, look alike, eat alike, or vote alike, uh, can still be united because of the shed red blood of Jesus Christ. Um, we can show the world how to do this. And my prayer is that the church of Jesus Christ, uh, the men of faith in this nation would stand up and say, here I am, Lord, send me, and to fight for reconciliation in our times. Until Jesus comes back, that's what he's called us to do. So that's my hope for the church to stand up. You know, you heard Ricky answer uh, the last question. Uh, that I asked him, which is out of this cultural moment, what do you hope emerges? And this brings our final application, and it's this, that we must lead the fight for cultural change. We gotta lead the fight. Why? Because Jesus said that we would be the salt, we would be the light, we would be the influencers. Listen to what he said in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There is an expectation that God's people become visible. And this is a moment that is custom built for us, as Ricky says, to rise as the church and be who we are. When you know your light and you know your salt, then you know what to do. Your job is to influence, to be in the mix, to project impact, right, for Jesus, for the gospel, by our response. Right? And so the church, instead of being behind, right now, God has handed us on a silver platter a moment to shine and shine forth the gospel, the light uh, of Christ. You know, Jesus, when speaking to the disciples about being in culture and the spiritual battle and what he wanted to do with us as the church in the middle of these battles with evil that we're fighting. This is what he says. He says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus says that for, for every evil gate and every evil agenda and for every evil injustice, he wants to hand us a kingdom key to unlock that gate and that agenda and to displace evil. To, to run in there and run through it. And, and that's what really resonated in Ricky's response about what his hope is. Is it structural hope? Sure, that we have some rails for our law enforcement, our, our amazing friends in law enforcement to, to follow. And then uh, the hope that the church will rise. Man, I wanna thank, thank Ricky for just being so raw and so personal and so honest with us. And I hope that this discussion, this conversation has really moved you, really moved the needle for you about feeling this moment fully, about embracing the reality of racism fully, about uh, not responding uh, dysfunctionally to uh, our black brothers and sisters, and, and to stop feeling bad and to, and to start speaking up, to get involved and to lead. Because that's what I believe the Bible teaches about what we're supposed to do in this moment but we're not gonna do it without the power of Jesus. And that's how I wanna close out today's conversation uh, and this new series is, is by praying and by asking Jesus himself to invade our minds, to invade our spirits, and that we might be like him in this moment. So wherever you are, let's pray and let's invite Jesus to speak into our hearts so that we can live out in this moment God's purpose and plan. Jesus, we surrender this moment in time. We surrender ourselves. We surrender our preconceived notions about race and reality and justice. 
And Lord, we want to be like you. Jesus, thank you that you modeled for us walking into a culture that was full of favoritism, injustice, ethnocentrism, racism, and you broke the rules. As the man from heaven, you started to bring God's love and God's justice to people who were feeling left out and you were connecting with people that, that religious people weren't connecting with. Oh God, forgive us. Forgive us for sticking to our narratives and sticking to worldly viewpoints when we have you as the model. Thank you for breaking the rules, Jesus, to touch people. And so, Lord, we pray together as a collective uh, in this moment that all of your purpose would be fulfilled, that we would hear what you are saying, Lord, that we would act versus allow injustice, and that we would unite as the people of God with our brothers and sisters that you created. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Don't forget to join us for part two of I Can't Breathe next week. We'll see you then. Thank you.